Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to stay there the, the entire time. As uh, Pastor Steve has said, uh, on the way out is our resource table. Um, everything is available in CDs, DVDs, USBs, direct download. Um, if you're wondering why we carry that around with us, it's because we make a lot of money from it. And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die, although we embrace that. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so 100% of what we'll make from that, profit-wise, uh, is given to justice projects around the world. We have three orphanages in China that look after mentally handicapped kids. Uh, we have a, um, a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. And the way we fund those things is that table, right? So there's two ways to fund something like that. One way is I could show you very sad pictures and say, if you have a heart beating, we're going to do this. And that's, I, I, don't, I can't do that. So what, what, I, what I do is I organize my business to where um, I make my living off of love offerings and things like that and pay for my plane tickets and all of that out of that. But the, the, the table out there is what we use to do justice. So uh, if you come out there and check those things out, I can do. Make, I can make stuff up here on your phone now. It's really, really, really cool, all right? So um, you, you can check that out. The only thing I'd ask is, if you could do me a big favor, if you know you're not going to get anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time, okay? If you know, hey, before I leave here today, I'm going to get something. If you could buy first and chat second, that would be awesome. The reason is is because i got to pack it all up and uh, take it with me. So if, if you could do that for me, um, that, would just, that would just be a really, really cool thing to do. So I, I want to talk to you this morning about taking responsibility to win at life, you have to take responsibility. There's lots of success stories, um, and I've never heard one that said this. I got to where I am in life by blaming somebody else for why I am the way I am. Uh, successful people, uh, the one thing they do have in common is they take responsibility for where they are, and they stand on their own two feet, and they move forward. All right? And so I want to I talk to you about that, and, and I want to inspire us with a very, very old story. So I'm going to read a passage written by a guy named Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is, is trying to encourage a group of slaves. So he's, he's writing to uh, a group of Israelites who were taken captive by an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he enslaved these poor people. And so uh, Ezekiel's trying to encourage them by speaking into it. Now, anytime you're reading something this old, you have to ask yourself, what did the original author intend to say to the original audience? You can't superimpose 2017 definitions over the top of 3,000-year-old literature, right? So in this day and age, when a prophet said life or death, and the reason I'm stopping to explain this is because if you're new to church, this, this passage is going to be very, very scary unless you understand what he's trying to say. When an ancient prophet said life, he wasn't talking about heaven when you die. He was talking about a choice you make to live inside God's ways now. It leads to peace and abundance. When he said death, he wasn't talking about literal death. He, or was he talking about hell? The idea of hell, as we think of it, did not exist in Ezekiel's day, okay? He's talking about a choice to live outside of God's ways here, and that leads your life to disrepair. So when Ezekiel says, the soul that sins is the one that will die, it's not talking about if you make a mistake, you'll die, or if you make a mistake, you'll go to hell. Abs anybody tells you that's what it means, I, I think the word is full of crap, okay? Like, that's what we're looking for. It's just not at all what, what, it, what it means. What it's talking about is in the scriptures, life and death were presented as choices. I, I said before you today, life and death. Choose life that you might live. Light, dark. Blessings, curses. 
These were choices. And so with that in mind, I want, I want to read this. This is Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to be there the whole time. This is verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Lord. You're not going to say that anymore. And I want to talk for a long time about just those three verses, and then we're going to move on. The father eats sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. couple questions. One, what does that proverb mean? And two, why is God so ticked off about it? Why doesn't God want to hear that? Now, to understand this proverb, we have to understand a brief history of Israel. Okay? So, I need you to sit up and pay very good attention, because I'm going to give you the entire history of Israel in 90 seconds. Ready? Here we go. Whew. There was a guy named Abraham who had a kid named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 children. Those 12 children ended up in Egypt through a series of unfortunate events. And then those babies started having babies, and then they started having babies, and then more babies had more babies, and then babies had more babies, and then more babies had more babies, and then had more babies, and then they had more babies, and then they had more babies. And this family then began to outpopulate the population of Egypt. The king of Egypt, a guy named Pharaoh, got very threatened by that and did the only natural thing he thought he could do, and that is enslave the entire family group of people. Years later, God raises up a man named Moses to get these people out of slavery and into freedom. And he gives them their own land, and he gives them a mandate. And the mandate was this. I have brought you out of slavery into freedom, and I want you to show the whole world what it looks like for me to run a country. I want you to maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. That was their mandate. Frankly, it went terrible. By the third king, a guy named Solomon, it says this in the book of Kings, that Solomon forced slaves to build the temple to the Lord. So a guy who comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he failed to see the irony of this. Uh, the book of Kings also says that Solomon collected horses, chariots, and spears and sold them from country to country at a profit. That's called arms dealing. So, Solomon was an arms-dealing slave-taker who absolutely used slaves to build the temple to honor the God who was a slave-freer. He failed to see the irony of this, and this group of people ends up back enslaved in Babylon. And who does this new generation of slave blame for their slavery? They blame Solomon. So much so that they wiped his name out of the historical record for over 400 years. They wouldn't even mention his name. They just called him David's son. It's sort of like how you speak about your ex-wife or your ex-husband if you get a divorce. You would never say their name, so you say, my ex. That's how it goes. If you want to wipe someone's memory away from somebody, all you have to do is refer to them in general terms. So they referred to him as David's son, and they would say, because David's son failed, we are where we are. It's David's son's fault. Which is why the prophets who preach to these people in Babylon, they never say Solomon. And they say things like this, Take heart, for God will raise up a new son of David, and that new son of David will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. Fast forward to Jesus. They call Jesus lots of things. Jesus Christ, Jesus son of Joseph, Jesus son of God, Jesus king. But the poor and the afflicted always call Jesus what? Jesus son of David have mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David that the prophets preached about? Because if you are, you're supposed to maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. And newsflash, I'm poor. Which means you are here for me. 
I thought that was pretty good. I thought that, that come on now. That was Back to Babylon, this group of slaves, in order to cope, all slave cultures write songs, poems, plays. Why? Because you can't make suffering an intellectual exercise. Somebody, if somebody ever says, why is someone suffering? That's making suffering an intellectual exercise. You cannot make suffering an intellectual exercise. You can't explain suffering in bullet points. You can in poetry. You can in song. You, you can in rap. You, 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 you can in, in music. You can in plays. The, the best uh, truths about suffering are best explained in movies, plays, poems, songs. Why? Because some things are just best explained in poetry. And so, like all slave cultures in the world, they started writing songs and plays and, and sayings. And one of the sayings that came around in this slave culture was, it's because my father ate sour grapes that my teeth are set on edge. In other words, the reason I'm enslaved today is because David's unveiled my father ate sour grapes and it set my teeth on edge and God says I don't want to hear that anymore now if you tuned out on any of that come back right now and I'll explain all of that in one sentence ready here's what's going on in this passage the current generation is blaming where they are in life on the previous generation because that's not relevant at all is it We've never heard that before. I'm a pastor and a counselor. Occasionally, pastors have to confront horrible behavior. And the number of times it goes something like this. Sir, your behavior's unacceptable. You're fixing to lose everything that matters to you. You've got to cut it out. And the guy goes, I know, but if you knew what my dad was like, you would understand why I am the way I am. Or you confront a woman, it goes like this. Ma'am. Your behavior's unacceptable. I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but your husband is secretly praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. You're horrible, you're critical, and you're cantankerous. No one likes being around you. And the woman says, I know. But if you knew what my mom was like, you would understand why I am the way I am. My dad was angry, so I'll be angry. My mom was critical, cantankerous, and horrible, so I'll be critical, cantankerous, and horrible. My dad was a drunk, so I'll be a drunk. My parents were drug addicts, so I'll be a drug addict. My parents were gang members, so I figure I'll try it. My dad didn't pass school, so I won't pass school. My father ate sour grapes, and it set my teeth on edge. And here's the thing. But don't be sneaking up on me like that. It's like, wah! <laughs> here's the thing, right? I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I, I, in other words... If you sat down with me and you answered my questions correctly, in about 30 minutes, I could tell you why you are the way you are. It's not hard to explain that. It's, it's a, Ray Charles can see why you are the way you are. But, but, yeah, okay, your dad. Your dad was a drunk, abusive, horrendous person. I get it. And oh, yeah, Your mom was this. And so, okay, look, anybody with any sense can tell you why you are the way you are. Here's the problem. You're 40. 
right? And at what point do you draw a line in the sand and go, just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to continue eating sour grapes, right? You say, Shane, you understand, man, you understand. My, my family had issues. Really? Let me ask you a question. Did your family have a man and a woman trying to live together? And there's going to be issues. All marriage has issues. Why? Because marriage is a blessing. And it's horrible. And it's wonderful. And it's hard. Marriage is so complicated, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Paul says, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. What's the Bible say about marriage? Depends on who you read. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. Paul was like, don't ever do it. Ever. Why would you ever do that? Good grief. Why? Because men and women are different. E even, if, even if you've got two basically good-hearted people who are basically mentally healthy, marriage is still hard. If you marry a lunatic, I, don't, I can't help you. But if you... Even, even two basically good-hearted people who are basically mentally healthy, they, they, just, it's, it's hard. Why? Because most things in marriage aren't about right and wrong. It's about preference. But different, and men and women prefer different things. Even simple things like smells. Women like sweet-smelling things. It's in their DNA. They love it. Perfume, flowers, candles. You hand a woman a bouquet of flowers, what's the first thing every woman's going to do? Sniff it. Sniffing plants. Right? You hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. That's what it costs. I don't care about that. Candles. You go to a big enough mall, there'll be a candle shop. You walk by any candle shop in the middle of the day, you can find two women in there sniffing candles. You know what that is? Two women sniffing wax for an hour and a half calling that fun. Oh, this one. Oh, this one's lovely. Oh, yeah, this one. Oh, I'll smell that. You'll never see two men doing that. You imagine walking by a candle shop and there's two guys in there. Hey, Billy, check that out, man. That's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something special. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, that candle shop's in Alabama, but nonetheless. <laughs> Women prefer sweet-smelling things. Men, on the other hand, prefer stinky stuff. Nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. That's hilarious. Women think that's disgusting. Men love stinky things. We like to smell stinky things. Even if, you, even if you train a man to put his dirty clothes in the dirty clothes hamper, even if you train him, if you watch him get undressed, right? He's getting undressed from his work, whatever, and he's dropping his dirty clothes in the dirty clothes hamper, before, particularly his socks. He'll take his socks off, and just before he drops them in, it's like we prove we work or something. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. And I can tell you this, man. If those socks don't smell bad enough, they'll be like, I think I can get one more wear out of these. I can tell you right now. That is not bad enough. These two people trying to live together. 
If a man's playing football and he gets dirty and sweaty and muddy and nasty and bloody, and he gets done with the game, he has to run by the, you know, got to get to a meeting or something, so he showers quickly, you know. He takes his dirty, bloody, sweaty, nasty clothes and he puts them in a plastic bag. He ties it up and puts it in the trunk of his car. Three months later, he's looking for something in the trunk of his car and he finds that bag. Every man in this room knows what must happen. It must. It's in our DNA. It's in the code of a man. If we find a bag and we know there's something stinky in there, we have to. We, every man in this room knows they have to. You have to open that bag and you've got to sniff it. Yep. We'll do it. We'll open the bag. Woo, goodness me. Good Lord, right? And here's the thing. It's in the DNA of all men. Every man. Every man has this DNA. If my three friends are around, they all owe me a courtesy sniff of my stinky thing. So you pass the bag around. And all your friends are like, oh, 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 God, oh, God. But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Once they smell your stinky thing, you owe them a courtesy sniff of their stinky thing. So if you're ever around and their stinky thing happens, you've got to sniff their stinky thing. And this is how it works. That's why if you're ever stuck in rush hour on the 580 or whatever this is out here, right? If you're ever stuck in rush hour right there and there's four guys in one car and three of them have their head out the window and the fourth guy's in the back seat laughing, uh-huh. Yep, he just cashed in on his courtesy sniff. Right? Of course your family had issues. Women like sweet smelling stuff. Men like stinky stuff. Creates issues. Language creates issues. A woman says, I have nothing to wear. A man looks at the closet and says, you have a closet full of nothing to wear. But every woman in the room knows what that means. When a woman says, I have nothing to wear, what she means is, I have nothing new. Let's go shopping. When a man says, I have nothing to wear, what he means is, I have nothing clean. Please do laundry. Two different things, right? It just happens, you know? You say, Shane, you understand, you understand, man. My dad had issues. Really? Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad had issues. My dad's got issues. My dad's a nice man. Really good. I could tell you where he was at 4.30 this morning. 4.30 this morning, I could tell you he was praying for this church meeting. And I could tell you why. Because he knew I was coming. And every single day of my life, at 4.30 in the morning, my father's been praying for me. Every day. I don't have to ask. My dad had issues. Namely, he liked to scare us. And I'm not talking about boo. I'm talking about scare you to death. I'm talking about knock you out your skin, scare you. My dad was a Vietnam vet. I think he got affected by stuff. And he, liked, he just liked to terrify us. Like, like one, time, one time when I was a little kid, I've never been a morning person. I've always stayed up late and got up late. You know, I've always been that way. And, and I always had a hard time getting up. My mom would come in and she'd shake me awake. And she'd sit me up on the side of the bed. I'd sit up on the side of the bed and I'd fall back asleep. So, so, so my father decided, I'm going to break Shane of this. I'm going to break him. And his idea was to hide under my bed. Now, let me be clear about this. I was six. You think the boogeyman lives under there anyway, right? So mom comes in. He doesn't tell mom what he's doing. He shakes me awake, sits me on the side of the bed. My dad had been under my bed for 30 minutes because he gets up for everybody, right? My dad, my dad gets up so early, you can't believe it. My dad, when, when I was a kid, he got up at 6. When I was a junior, I was 5.30. By high school, it was 5. I went to university, it was 4.30. Now it's 4.15. I was talking to him the other day, and he said, Shane, I'm thinking about getting up earlier. And I said, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. This is getting ridiculous. So... Dad's hiding under my bed. I'm just about to fall back asleep. And my dad reached out and grabbed my feet. <laughs> Your dad had issues. 
He also liked to embarrass us, like bad, loved to embarrass us, loved it. Like one time he was dropping me off for junior high camp, like 150, 13-year-olds, you know, what could go wrong? And so he's pulling up at the, at the church and he said, Shane, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm going to pray for you every day that God's going to touch your life at camp. And I said, oh, thanks, Dad. I love you, too. So we pulled up. I said, see you later, Dad. Dad said, hang on. Where's my kiss? I said, Dad, not here, man. Like, it's in front of my friends, you know. And he said, he said, oh, I get it. I get it. Go ahead. So anyway, I get out, and I hand the bus driver my bag. And there's two huge buses, like one of these 60 passenger things, two huge buses full of 13-year-olds. And I'm sitting in the next to last row, and we're ready to go. And it's all, it's all full. And I look up, and to my horror, my father had decided to get on the bus right? And it was summertime. He had his shorts on. He pulled his shorts up to here, right? <laughs> pulled his socks up to here, and he got on the bus with a limp. He's, you know, <laughs> and he grabbed the microphone, and he said, excuse me, everybody. This bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Wayne comes up here and gives me a kiss. The whole bus started chanting, kiss him, kiss him. Your dad had issues. Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. The only question is, is do you have to continue their issues forward? Your family had issues. Yes, join the crowd. But you don't have to continue that forward. Which leads me to an observation about common sense. Every person in this room, your common sense was developed before the age of eight by your family of origin, okay? How to handle conflict. Do you talk it through? Do you yell? Do you, do you manipulate? Do you isolate? What you saw your parents do in your family of origin becomes a mark that determines what you think is normal. Let me be clear about this. It's not your fault. What you were brought up to think was normal, you didn't choose your parents. It's not your fault. And sometimes common sense is helpful. We bathe every day. Helpful. We wash our dishes after we use them. Helpful. Sometimes common sense loses the plot. Oh, it's the weekend. Everybody gets drunk. True? Sort of? Helpful? No. Hey, it's 2017. Everybody's promiscuous. True? Sort of? Helpful? No. Sometimes common sense is helpful. Sometimes common sense loses the plot. In biblical terms, let's say it this way. Sometimes common sense is light and life and increase. Sometimes common sense is death and darkness and decrease. And wisdom is to have the bravery to look at what you think is normal, engage it, and say, you know what? I thought that was normal, but that's not producing good fruit. I need to change my life. Just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean my teeth have to be set on edge. Watch Ezekiel's encouragement around this. Watch what he says. Next slide. For everyone, everyone, everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. But the one who sins is the one that will die. See, when Ezekiel wrote this, there was two prevailing thoughts. One is is that God was for a certain group of people and against a certain other group of people. So if you were in the group that God was for, your life was good. They thought it was luck. 
Oh, your life's going well. God must be for you. Oh, your life sucks. God must be against you. Ezekiel says something profoundly revolutionary. He's saying that every, any discussion about who belongs to God and who doesn't, that's stupid. Every living soul belongs to God. Why? Because every person is breathing God's air, living in God's world, head together by God's name. God is for everyone. But the person who chooses death and the person that chooses to live outside of God's way, that is the person whose life goes into disrepair. And their life goes into disrepair not because God's against them, but because the natural consequences of what they're doing doesn't work. So the first assumption was God was for somebody and, and not for others. The second thing they thought was true was that if your father was a sinful person, then the consequences of that passed down. That there was nothing you could do. If your dad was wicked, God was ticked at you through generations. And so they thought that was true as well. And Ezekiel's going, uh, no, that's unfair. That doesn't sound like God at all. Um, actually, there's a better way to think about this. And here's what he does. From verse 4 to verse 18, which I won't read, he makes this long case, and essentially here's what he says. Suppose there's a righteous man, and that righteous man has a son who turns out to be wicked. And that wicked man then has a son who turns out to be righteous. Does the righteous man automatically pay for the sins of his wicked father? And he goes, surely not. The righteous man's righteousness will stand on his own two feet. And does the wicked man inherit the righteousness of his righteous father? No, because the wicked man is choosing to ruin his life. His life gets ruined. Essentially what he says is that every generation stands on their own two feet before God. And the ones that choose light and life and increase, their life goes well. And the ones that choose death, darkness, and decrease, their life goes to death. And that's how it works. And it has nothing to do with God being for one and not for another. And it definitely has nothing to do with generational consequences. Every living soul belongs to God. And every generation can stand on their own two feet before God and make better choices. Now, to us, that seems obvious. Like, we would never blame our fathers for why we are the way we are. We're past that, right? For us, that seems obvious. To them, that was revolutionary. Because they had been taught their whole life that consequences passed down through generations. Ezekiel's going, no, 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 no. God's better than that. And he makes this huge case. And then here's where we get to verse 18 where he summarizes it. Here's what he says. Ready? But the father will die for his own sin. And he's talking about the righteous grandson. He's saying the father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst the people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Right? Because the people would be asking, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Why? Because they were taught their whole life that the son shares the guilt of the father. Anytime you go against something people were taught their whole life, you're going to get a little bit of pushback. Right? And so they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're... Ezekiel, it sounds like you're saying that the righteous son doesn't share the guilt of the wicked father. Ezekiel's like, that's exactly what I'm saying. And they're like, how is that true? Watch what he says. Uh, Since the son has done what is just and right, has been careful to keep my decrees, he will live and not die. That sounds fair. Next slide. Let's keep going. The one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous man will credit to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. 
But if a wicked person, this is unbelievable. In this day, you can't believe how gracious this was. If a wicked person turns away from his sins he's committing and commits my decrees and, and does what is just and right, that person will live and not die. I love that. In other words, Ezekiel's saying, no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one decision away from turning your life around and entering back into life, light, and increase. It doesn't matter how far down that road you get. And I know I'm in Victory Outreach, so I know that there's a men's home and a women's home. And, all, and I want to I give, give you two thoughts on that. One, first, I want to commend the bravery that it takes for you to make that first decision to start turning your life around. That's flipping brave. That's brave. That's empowering. And if you've made that choice, I would say keep making it. And if you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, Ezekiel says your first move if you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease is not to blame your father. It's not to blame your mother. It's not to say, well, God's just making me pay for my dad's sin. It's no. Wake up. Stand on your own two feet. Say yes to God and turn your life around. Now, well, he keeps going. Watch this. Keep going. None of the offenses he's committed be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, things he's done, he'll, he'll live. Do I take pleasure in the death of anyone? In the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? In other words, God's not a God watching someone destroy their life going, hey, you guys got to check this out. This is going to be a flipping disaster. Watch this. Watch this. This person is ruining their life. You can't wait to see the consequences here. No, God is along the way going, turn around, turn around. That road goes off that cliff. That road, that road is going off that cliff. Whether you're on it or not, please turn around. In Proverbs, it says this. A wise person sees danger on the road ahead and shifts roads. But a fool keeps going because it's easier and he suffers for it. it. God's going, change roads, change roads, change roads, change roads. Watch this. Next slide. But if a righteous person turns away from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable thing the wicked does, will they live? No, none of the righteous things the person don't be remembered. Because of his unfaithfulness, they are guilty, and because of the sins they committed, they'll die. Watch what he's saying here. He's saying no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, your one choice is to turn around and start heading back into life, light, and increase. But then he makes this incredible observation. He says no matter how far down the road of life, light, and increase you get, if you, keep, if you don't keep going and you turn around and start heading back to death, that can ruin your life too. In other words, let me say it this way. Good decisions do not behave like savings accounts. Right? In, in other words, let me say it this way. If you make 20 years of great decisions, it's not like you get 20 years of horrendous decisions before you get back to even. 20 years of really good decisions can be undone oftentimes in one bad move. Whoever's got the best marriage in the room, whoever that is, I can tell you that as good as your marriage is, it's one really bad decision away from getting wobbly. Whoever's got the best business in the room, you're one not really well thought out business decision away from it getting wobbly. Ezekiel's saying this. Let me say it as simply as I can. If you're on the road to death, darkness, and decrease, your one decision, turn around. If you're on the road to life, light, and increase, keep going every day. Wake up saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for your life and stay on that path. Watch this. Yet you say the way of the Lord's not just. I told you, when you come against what people were taught their whole life, they push back. So there was a group of slaves going, this doesn't sound fair. Right? Hero Israel, is it my ways that are unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? In other words, hang on. Your way is this. 
that someone's great-grandfather could have been wicked and four generations later, some poor person who didn't do anything's paying for it? That doesn't sound just. That doesn't sound fair. And then he summarizes it. Watch this. If a righteous person turns to their righteousness and commits sin, they'll die. Because of the sins they've committed, they'll die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they've committed and does what just right, they'll live. In other words, if you turn around, you live. And if you keep going, you live. But if you head that way, that's death. And it's not because I'm against anybody. It's because that's, way, that's the way it works. Watch this. Because they consider all the offenses they've committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live and not die. Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Like, what about that sounds unfair? That sounds really a lot better than what you've been taught your whole life. This is empowering. This is awesome. The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Watch what he says. Next slide. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways. Not your dad's ways. Not your mom's ways. Not your grandparents' ways. Every generation stands on their own two feet before God, and I will judge you according to your Decisions. I don't want to hear my father ate sour grapes so set my teeth on edge. I don't want to hear anymore it's someone else's fault. It does not empower your life to be blaming somebody else for why you are the way you are. It doesn't empower your life to blame your mom, your dad, your congressman, your president. It doesn't empower you. Right, wrong, or indifferent, your life is your life. And you can stand on your own two feet and you can make better choices starting today. Today, therefore, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. That just means turn around. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Watch what he says. Watch this. this is brilliant. Watch this. Rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Turn around. And find life. Now, a couple things. One, you might be thinking, Shane, first of all, pretty good sermon. Second of all, hilarious. Third, so what? This is 2017. You just read a 3,000-year-old document. So what? What do we do with this? Okay, glad you asked. First, all of us are shaped by our history and heritage. And let me be clear about this. It's not your fault. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your upbringing. You didn't choose the neighborhood you were brought up in. You were a kid. What you think is normal was burned into you before the age of eight. And you were shaped by that. That is true. But wisdom says as an adult, you can look back on that and go, you know what? This is my heritage, and this part of my heritage needs to go forward, and this part of my heritage needs to be left right here with them. That's called wisdom. My father, his prayer discipline needs to go forward. His work ethic needs to go forward. His generosity needs to go forward. His propensity to scare six-year-olds needs to end with him. His love of embarrassing people needs to end with him. All of us have things like that. Now, let me stop. I'm going to speak slowly because I think I, I know I can help you. In a room this size, it is highly likely that at least one of you is thinking this. 
Shane, I hear you. And you know what? I even agree with you. It's not that. What's upsetting me is you stood on a stage and you did a 12-minute comedy routine about smells and flowers and language, and it was funny. And you told the worst stories you could tell about your father from a stage, and it was funny. I wish that the stories about my dad would have been he scared me. At least your dad was there. I wish the stories about my dad was he embarrassed me. At least he was there. Because if you knew what my father did to me, I couldn't say it from a stage because it wouldn't be funny at all. So I hear what you're trying to say, Shane, but it sounds like you grew up in some privilege because it sounds like you had great parents, and I didn't. What my father did to me and what my mother did to me could not be spoken about from a stage because it would turn people's stomachs. What do you say to me? Give me a second, and I know I can help you. The scriptures say to honor your father and your mother so that your days will be long in the land God gives you. That has nothing to do with, with long life. Literally, it's more in God's, God's best for your life. You can stay in that land a long time if you honor your father and mother. Now, and the question then would be, how do I honor a man or a woman who was not honorable? How do you honor a man or a woman who was actually a horrible person? What do you do with that kind of stuff? Okay, please listen to me, and I know I can help you. First, you don't honor someone because they're honorable. You honor someone because you're honorable. That's first. Second, in Hebrew... Honor has nothing to do with what you say to a person and everything to do with how you behave away from them. Let me explain what I mean. If you're a parent and you have a 16-year-old daughter and that 16-year-old daughter said, Dad, I honor you, that would bless your heart, right? But what would bless you more is to know that when she's out with her friends at 11 o'clock at night, she's acting in an honorable way when you're not around. That's more honoring. It's one thing to say, pastors, I honor you. It's a whole other thing to be living by the values of Victory Outreach when you're out on the street and no one is there to monitor it. That's where true honor comes. Now, to honor your father has nothing to do with saying, Dad, I honor you. It has everything to do with taking a gauge and an audit of what was taught to you and only, only passing forward the righteousness, the ways of God. It's, it's eradicating the death, darkness, and decrease and only perpetuating the life, light, and increase. Let me explain what I mean. About three times a year, I get asked something like this. Shane... Wow, you must come from a long line of preachers. Uh, no. Um, my great-grandfathers were illiterate. They couldn't read. They were moonshiners. In case you don't know what that is, that's running illegal alcohol across state lines. 
They were members of the Ku Klux Klan um, and all that that entailed. My great-grandfather was an illiterate, moonshining racist. So how do you get from that to a guy that left his house January 4th and he's not back and he's traveling around the world preaching the gospel. How do you get from that to, a, to my brother who's got a master's degree in business administration, who's a vice president of a bank, how do you, who now has left that to serve Jesus full-time himself? How do you get from illiterate, moonshining racist to two master's degree educated, traveling the world, preaching the gospel guys? How do you get from that to this? Here's how. My parents said, you know what? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not, we are not going to be like that. Just because they chose to eat those sour grapes does not mean we are. Our children are going to go to school. Our children are going to learn to read books. Our children are going to learn the ways of Jesus. Our children are going to learn to worship. Our children are going to learn the presence of God. Our children are going to learn generosity and kindness. Our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. And in one generation of my mom and dad saying, you know what? Our children will go to school. They will get educated. They will go to university. They will learn the ways of Jesus. They will do this. And they will, racism will not be accepted in our household because that is stupid. Right? One generation is all it took to change everything. You, my brothers and sisters, can be the heroes of your generations if you make that choice today. You do not have to perpetuate the dysfunction of the previous generation. And here's what he says. He says, if you'll rid yourself of the things that are causing death, you'll get a new heart and a new spirit. One last thought and then I'm done. There's a way to teach this that says something like this. Oh, if you could just get healed, then you could start behaving better. Oh, you need to get your heart healed. And then if you could get your heart healed, then you could start behaving better. And I guess there's a little bit of merit to that, but that is not how Ezekiel frames it. Ezekiel clearly says, God does not, God's not interested in healing you. And you know what? That's relieving. Because quite frankly, some things you can't be healed from. Some violations are so personal, you want to get healed from that? No. Some divorces are so violative. Like, you want to get healed from that? Some backgrounds are so destructive. You want to get healed from that? I don't think so. And that's Ezekiel's point. He says, God is not interested in healing your heart. God is interested in giving you a brand new one. Why would you want to walk around with a patched up, healed, wounded heart when there's a heart transplant waiting for you? Why would you want to do that? And here's what he says. He says, if you'll by faith begin to act in God's ways, the new heart and the new spirit is wrapped up in that package. One side says, get healed and then act right. Ezekiel says, no, 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 no. By faith, start behaving right and a new heart and new spirit is wrapped up in that. I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to be people who honor your father and mother. It's the key to your days being long. Don't honor them because they were. Honor them because you are. And honor them because your life depends on it. And honor them because your children's 
lives depend on it. You have an opportunity today to be the hero of your family tree. My, I don't have any children, and I think that opportunity is past me, but my brother, my brother has children, and their children's children will look back on my parents long after they're dead and go, man, those people changed our family line forever. You can be that person for your family. Because here's the thing. If you choose not to, then your children will have to. Why leave it to them when it can be you? I bless you to be people who never, ever, ever again say, my father ate sour grapes, so it set my teeth on edge. I bless you to be people to take responsibility. I bless you to be people who have the faith to trust Jesus' version of your life story instead of the one you've written for yourself. I bless you to be people who surrender to the ways of Jesus. I bless you to be people who give your life to the risen Christ. Say yes every day to the infinite possibilities God has for your life. And may you never blame any other person ever again for why you are the way you are. May you stand on your own two feet and choose life that you might live. Until I see you again next year, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.